0: Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. You might know me from the Exit Scam Podcast miniseries. series. Here with my co host, Max Linsky. You know him from the 70 Over 70 podcast and Evan Ratliff. You know him from the book The Mastermind and lots of other stuff. I'm promoing, guys. Hello. I love it. I love the, uh, the commitment to the intro, man. Aaron, I like it when you take the opportunity to remind people
1: that we're not just sitting here in front of these long form microphones all the time. We actually have other
0: things going on in our lives. Things that you can support with your eyeballs and ears uh, as you see fit. On this week's show, I talked to Amy Ziering and Kirby Dick, who are documentary filmmakers. Uh, They're behind the new-ish miniseries, Alan vs. Pharaoh. And they've also done films like The Hunting Ground, uh, The Invisible War, and On the Record. In fact, lots of other movies also. But I have been watching a lot of these uh, streaming nonfiction uh, documentary series, and I've never really talked to someone about how you put one together and how that's distinct from something like a documentary feature. They were extremely forthcoming. Uh, It's a really good interview.
1: I love it when you cross mediums, Aaron,
0: into the documentary realm. We're going to be doing uh, more of that as part of our new partnership With Vox, we're going to be talking to more filmmakers and more podcasters. And Aaron, I'm very glad that you talked to these two. And now
1: here is Aaron with Amy Ziering and Kirby Dick.
0: Hello. uh, Welcome, Amy Ziering and Kirby Dick. Hey. Hello. Hello. So you are a documentary film duo behind the recent Allen vs. Farrow documentary, as well as many, many other documentaries, so many that I will uh, not list them here now. Um, but I'm curious, with partnerships like yours, like how did you meet each other? How, how did you become a duo? I was in
1: grad school. I was in getting a doctorate. I was working with the philosopher Jacques Derrida. And sort of as a lark and a gambit thought, well, it'd be much more interesting to sort of make a film on him. It also would sort of exercise a different muscle. Like everybody can write a paper and everybody can do a presentation in front of Derrida. And I don't and for those that don't know, Jacques Derrida is like sort of one of the most important thinkers of the last century. The term deconstruction was coined by him, which now is sort of used colloquially in all sorts of different disciplines. Anyway, so I was working with him and thought, gee, I really should make a film on him. And he was actually, this was, when was this? This was the early 80s. And he was very adamant about not doing anything where his image was public. He wanted just people to focus on the work, the written word. And he was very sort of like an anti-Kardashian, like the antithesis of anyone who ever wanted anything public. You know, it wasn't about his personal persona. But I really, I went up to him and I said, look, you know, if there was a film today And you could watch Socrates, dude, you'd watch it. What about, you know, Nietzsche? Like, you can't tell me you wouldn't like be there buying a ticket first in line. So stop being so precious. You need to step up because it's going to be part of how people receive you and and can learn from you. And so after a very long time, he finally agreed. And so I I knew nothing. I was just a grad student and I, I was from LA. So he assumed somehow by osmosis, I knew something about filmmaking, which was completely false. So I called a friend who was editing then. She was an editor on Dead Poet Society. And She said, you know, I know this editor. She's who's great, named Dodie Dorn. Dodie now is like a you know, really huge editor, did a lot of Ridley Scott movies. But at the time she was working, she's, she's working with this guy, Kirby Dick, out in Silver Lake, and he's doing some documentary. Maybe you two should meet. And I was like, uh, when you're next in LA. So when I came to LA, my friend Debbie Zeitman called and said, Yeah, they're doing a screening of a film, a rough cut that Dodie's cutting called Sick. Why don't you go out and watch it? And I went out to Silver Lake and I watched the cut. And I was honestly blown away because it was super powerful filmmaking, but it was also super complicated and sophisticated intellectually and analytically in actually a deconstructive way. The film was about a a masochist who suffered from cystic fibrosis and his performance art was masochistic and sadomasochistic acts. And he was doing that to appropriate the pain, right? If you can't control the pain, he was working it through his art by appropriating it. And what Kirby did in the film was not only sort of profile him, but he also was very consistently not hierarchizing in a pejorative way masochistic acts. And that would be a very deconstructive gesture to not sort of privilege some kind of conservative, conventional, institutional norm over what we would call, in quotes, aberrant behavior. So I was extremely profoundly moved by the film and struck by it. So I went up to Kirby afterwards, I gave him my notes, <laughs> which, um, and we had a conversation. I said, you know, I'm working on this film on Jacques Derrida. And he was like, Derrida, oh my God. And it was amazing because at the time I could clear a room. You go up to anyone and saying, you're working on Derrida. And like, they couldn't find someone else quicker to talk to. Like, and he was like, well, and then I, you know, said, will you help me? And he started to sort of mentor me. And then we collaborated. And then it was like a surprise art house hit. I mean, for... I hit back in 2001 for an obscure philosopher. It was, you know, like played at the Newark for two weeks. They did the best business since Blair Witch. And we had a really good working relationship. So from then on, we just kind of continued. That That's my version of the
0: genesis. Kirby, I did not realize that you had directed Sick. I worked in a video store from about 2000 to 2003 and we had a longstanding practice of after a certain hour playing really inappropriate things on the TV at the video store, and Sick was one of the things that was in our playing in the store rotation. So I've actually seen it probably twenty-five times. <laughs> I, I'm very familiar with it. So tell me, like, how you how you ended up making that film? What what career path led you to that point?
2: Well, I'd been in art school. I'd gone to a couple of art schools, including California Institute of the Arts, and uh, I'd been working a lot in video art and actually wanted to transition uh, into making film more in scripted film. And like Amy, I was naive, but I think kind of my naivete sort of saved me because it was a huge jump. And uh, I started trying to get scripts off the ground, wasn't particularly successful, saw that other people were moving into directing through making documentaries. So I decided, well, okay, I'll do that. I picked a subject that was actually turned out to be extremely rich. It was uh, sex surrogate therapy. It was called Private Practices, the Story of a Sex Surrogate. This was in the mid-80s. What sex surrogate therapy is, it's for more for men than women, but for who have a sexual problem. Then a therapist will assign a sex surrogate to work with that client and go through a series of exercises to address whatever issues he has. You're sort of working things out with this surrogate partner. I was able to uh, set it up so that I could actually film two courses of therapy with two different men and obviously brought up all kinds of issues. Uh, I mean, issues certainly around the way men viewed women, the way we viewed sexuality, the way we communicated about it, therapy. Um, It was so rich That At that point, I was just sort of won over by documentaries.
0: At the time you both got into it, was documentary filmmaking sort of a guerrilla approach to getting into film at that point? And how has being a documentary filmmaker changed over the last 25 years in your estimations?
2: Well, it's certainly changed, yes. Uh, I mean, I felt very much on the outside. I mean, in some ways, that was actually a more interesting place to work from because people just did not think your film was at all significant financially. So they let you alone to make the film that you wanted to make. Now we're in a time which is there's literally a hundred times more money in the business, maybe more. And it's certainly been good in a lot of ways because obviously there's a huge audience for this and and a very appreciative audience. But I also think um, there's some things that are lost of these sort of individual voices, particularly younger filmmakers. And I think the amount of money is sort of mainstreaming the kind of films that you're seeing and not allowing for these other voices to come forward.
1: Well, case in point, sick never would have been made or distributed today. (laughs) Like early, late 90s is when we we were making our first film, or I was making my second film, actually. You know, docs were the poor relation. No one cared, as Kirby said, and they pretty much left you alone. And you sort of had a real clear path. You could go to festivals and then get an art house release and be, as I said, quote unquote, successful. I mean, Derrida today would not be considered success. It was a raging success back then. And yes, it was a conduit. Many people would go into docs in order to sort of leapfrog to features or fiction. That certainly we saw. But what's strange today and very different is docs are the new black, like, you know, there's so much hunger for content. There's so much money in the space. That's the beautiful upside. The sad downside is, you know, the green lights are very much informed by the algorithms and the algorithms don't exactly (laughs) cleave to the most interesting, eccentric, you know, idiosyncratic material. You know, when you have so much power in the hands of a few distributors, I'm seeing projects that are more edgy, um, critical, you know, investigative focused that take on, you know, sort of lions that might be friends of, you know, the powers that be not getting greenlit. And I, you know, that's not an accident. So the, there's a higher bar of censorship as well. That's very, very real. And I don't think is being talked about enough.
0: What is the process like from something going to an idea to production? And how many ideas are you currently working on? You, you're, you're putting out films at a, a pretty good clip. So there seems to be a pipeline of some kind to getting these projects going.
2: It doesn't quite feel like a pipeline, but uh, <laughs> um, uh, we develop almost all our own projects, um, and so we uh, we go out and look for subject matter that really hasn't been covered very extensively at all. Um, usually, if something's been covered extensively in the film, like I'm mean, in, in the in the you know in the country, like Scientology or something. I mean, that's not our interest. We want to, go, like, for example, with a film that Amy and my, I made um, called The Invisible War about rape in the military, there, there wasn't much talk at the time when we started making that film in 2010. And so we, we look for those kind of stories. We do our investigation. We do our research. There's a long development process for us even before we decide, yes, we want to do it. For us, it's not about putting out a film or putting out a series. It's about finding something that we think is overlooked, is important, and that we can you know, spend two or three years fully engaged in and making it.
0: Given that approach to filmmaking, looking at the Alan Verse Pharaoh story, what was the new territory you felt like you needed to cover in the film and what did you hope to achieve that you feel like someone who maybe thought they knew about the story didn't know?
1: Honestly, we were interviewing Dylan for a very different thing. We just, you know, post Me Too because we had done two films that had really broken ground on sexual assault. We did The Invisible War and we did then The Hunting Ground. And that Hunting Ground came about because students had watched The Invisible War and wrote us letters begging us, to look at what's going on the campuses so post me too our cell phones started exploding distributors started saying hey you guys are the people to be in the space people are talking now you know i flew to brooklyn and we rented a house and i started interviewing anyone who wanted to speak post me too and dylan was someone who said i'll speak to you and in the course of that interview aaron i was like and i'm like you i'm what 58 years old so i thought i knew right oh she said so many things i was like wait what so I remember, you know, then huddling with Kirby and Amy Hurdy, this journalist who we work with very closely on, on many of our projects, and sort of debriefing. And Amy was like, Amy Hurdy was like, oh my God, yeah, like there's so much here. And we started talking about it. And so to your point about people thought they knew it, I think what, what I like to say is it was, we think it's he said, she said, it was really he said, he said, he said, he said, he said. That's what we thought we knew for 30 years. And there was no corroboration for the he said. He had the microphone, the platform, and the greater power. We were like, oh, my God, there's a story here that's never been told, that needs to be told. And let's dig in and see what we find. And that's that's kind of how that happened. So it did still, even though, yes, it seems like something that's been well-treaded, we felt it wasn't. And that was why it necessitated, you know, our diving in.
0: The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now normally you get a 2 week free trial, but listeners of long form get a whole month free. Go to listening.com/longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. so taking that initial spark and then saying okay we have four hours to fill with it and we need to cut up this story into something that can be digested in pieces what is the process for you
2: what happened is initially we thought this would be a film that was our initial idea. And as we started to cut more and more, and it became very apparent that not only was there so much more to the story to tell, but also there were so many other issues that it brought up. We just I mean, the cutting, you know, you ended up with I don't know, six, seven hours of material, and you realized that it was all extremely rich. So at that point we decided to restructure it as a miniseries. And um, I will say that in many ways, we treated it as one long film. You know, the the amount of effort we put into every little detail of that. There wasn't really a template for each episode, which is often the case for miniseries. So it was really one long film that was broken up so that people would be engaged and go from one episode to the next.
1: And it was a very big learning curve for us. All our features are very kind of Aristotelian and first, second, third act structure. And, you know, it's very classic actually film narrative structure for our other docs but so this was i need you know we needed to be sure that people clicked (laughs) i mean i'm you know i i you know and and that's very different from a feature
2: in some ways with a documentary as with a scripted film the script is written in advance right with a documentary especially with an investigative exploratory open-ended documentaries that we make and and other documentary filmmakers make the Editors become the part of the writing process, part of shaping it, part of understanding it, part of grappling with it. And so we've been, you know, very fortunate to have to be able to work with the editors. And and you can't, we couldn't make these. There's no possible way you these projects would be what they were without the editors that we've worked with.
0: What do you think about when you film an interview with someone, both on a visual level and what you're getting when you're actually sitting with them in the room? what do you both bring to the in-person interview and and what have you learned about that element uh, of your craft?
2: Well, Amy does the interviews or does almost all of them. I usually come in kind of at the very end, but they're really Amy's interviews and it's just amazing to watch her work because uh, Amy is very empathic and, and I think that allows the subject to open up and, and, and I've seen this again and again, to tell things that they they hadn't even told their spouse or their parents. It's amazing to watch her work. I mean, I I think all her interviews are amazing, but I was just struck by the Invisible War interviews. Those are, you know, one of the great series of interviews, I think, that have been done in American documentary. And I think that's one of the reason that film has such an effect. I mean, it changed military policy. There were five congressional hearings. Uh, Senator Gillibrand took it up as a cause and will probably, you know, within the year, get the reform through that the film was advocating. And I think that all goes back to the way that audiences are able to connect with these subjects because of Amy's skill in interviewing.
1: I, I appreciate that. But I want to, There, I have a, and I think it's a great question because I don't, I think people don't, Realize how much goes in and how categorically different it is when you're sitting and interviewing for film than you are for any other medium. Everything is important. The kind of room, especially with survivors, we made it always a safe space, secure. You know, a lot of PTSD people don't want to sit with their backs to doors. Like you just think about all that so they don't have to worry at all. So There's a, you know, they know they're in good hands, even unconsciously, right, when they walk in the room. We made sure with Invisible War and Hunting Ground that the crew was tiny, you know, um, as tiny as possible. Sometimes Kirby would leave the room for that reason so that it's as intimate a space. So all of those things, the visuals obviously are a big part of it as well. We're extremely sensitive to that. Um, We ask people to bring changes of clothes so there's different options so that, no one is, it's not so much for like a Hollywood feel. It's more for a less distracted feel. We don't want it to look, you to be going, wait, why, you know, what what does their t-shirt say? And and subjects don't know that for documentaries. They'll just show up. So you have to kind of guide them and say, just bring options of whatever you're comfortable in. And we select that, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. So all that's going on. And, And then in addition, if you're, this is tips for people, survivors, whenever I sit down, I'm like, I tell them with cameras off, this is about you and your needs, not mine. If I say anything and you don't want to answer, 100% fine. If you want to stop at any point, totally great. If you want us to leave, if you change your mind mid sentence, okay. I don't want you, you've gone through enough. I don't want you to lose any sleep because of anything that goes on in this space. Like, that's not my game. And that, you know, what I heard retrospectively, especially the, actually the Weinstein survivors, because I interviewed a lot of them, they were like, No one said that from any other news outlet. And it made such a difference that you said that. You gave me that autonomy and that respect and that comfort. And the last thing I'll say, because Kirby credited me, but I want to give him a ton of credit, what I love about being a a pair of documentarian directors is that we also, yes, with Survivors, it's a safe space. But if you watch some of our other films, they're pretty aggressive, hard-hitting investigative pieces. And I get to go in and be good cop with the bad guys and they'll tell me everything cause I'm interested and I'm, and then he can come in and start asking those questions that are much more edgy at the end. And because they're so warmed up, they might not realize it. We get amazing stuff as a result. And I think that's a secret superpower that we have that I don't think people know or, well, they can't know cause you, know, you don't usually hear who's talking in our, in our films. You don't usually hear my voice or his, but often that was a technique we would use like, okay, like in hunting ground, if we had to talk to a fraternity guy, like Amy, you go in and you know you do the bro speak, and you know, and then Kirby comes in and goes, hmm, you know, <laughs> and it was really interesting. I mean, it's really um, that's also very, I think, uh, you know, really helps helps the
0: work we do in an
1: interesting way.
0: You've got this big canvas, and you've got some of these people who are going to appear at different places along that canvas. They might be talking about the 1970s in the first episode and then come back and talk about something that happened in 2015 in the last episode. How much of what you're doing in, in those interviews in something like Alan versus Farrow, do you know exactly where things are going to slot in later?
2: I would say it's both. I mean, we we think we know what we want, right? And we go for that. We think, well, we would love them speaking about this time of uh, the story or this uh, issue we would love them to address that. But I think also we're very sensitive to watch where they go um, and to follow those stories because you know oftentimes people start down a path that seems very unconnected and then it brings up an entirely different issue that you weren't even aware of and and that kind of moment I think is is really, important because you are kind of in really being surprised and they are probably surprised that they're even talking about it. So there's that that connection there. And I think, you know, audiences can sense that. And also then, of course, you discover yet another way to go into your subject matter. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting, we've made a lot of films, you know, I made a film, Twist of Faith, about clergy sexual abuse in 2004 and we've, and Amy and I have made a lot of, a number of films about uh, sexual abuse, you know, in the last 10 years. And at first I thought, well, you know, if, we're, if we make one film, then we make another. Is there something repetitive about this going into that subject matter again? But what I found uh, was each time we started another project, I felt like I was going another level deeper.
0: I'm curious what you've learned about making complex things understandable on screen with limited time.
1: It's a real art. That's what I've learned. It's it's incredibly important to effectively communicate. And to do that, you can't overwhelm. You can't go down too many rabbit holes. It's good if you repeat, because if it's new information and people only hear it once, I, I, I noticed that um, a lot with some of our films. <laughs> when we're not able, we don't have the screen time or the liberty to repeat. I mean, there's a reason advertising says you need it seven times, is that you're immersed and you think this point is so important. And you know, at, you'll do a QA and you'll realize, oh, audiences didn't really absorb that in the way I'd hoped. It's really the challenge, right? You have um, a limited amount of time, a very limited medium, and you have to make sure that people are engaged with A character and a narrative. I mean, that's kind of, if you want to know sort of one of the sort of structural things we always aim to do, is make sure you have a strong protagonist that people can identify with and empathize with and follow their story. But then while you're doing it, punctuate that with the information you want to share. And what's interesting about that is people don't realize. much they're learning because they're so engaged. And they're open and receptive. I mean, I was talking to Dan Kogan, our executive producer, he's like, how do you guys manage? I mean, you've you've had so much impact. How do you do it? And I said, I think our secret sauce is we traumatized you. And because you're in a traumatic state, you're open to hearing in a different way and learning. You know, like Alan V. Farrow is a good case in point. I can't tell you. You can go on Twitter and see the number of people that are like, I thought 100% this way. After watching four episodes, I'm I'm totally a completely changed my opinion. In this day and age, how many issues are there where people completely change their opinion?
0: How did you both think about the statements of Moses Pharaoh, who is kind of presenting a different set of facts than other people in the documentary? And he is not in the documentary, though there is a a pretty important part that sort of presents textual excerpts from a, a article he wrote. And also in the documentary is a significant amount of audio from Woody Allen's audiobook. I believe it's called Apropos of Nothing. Tell me about the decision to include both of those things. And I'm actually curious even like the legal story behind including um, both the text from his blog post and mostly the audio recording of Woody Allen's voice.
2: That's, you know, fair use. You know, everything that we did was was run through our attorneys. But basically, if you use a, a portion of it, just like you're quoting in a news article, you know, that's a form of fair use too. There are actually a lot of restrictions that you have to conform to, but we we thought it was very important to include because it was Woody Allen in his own voice, because he was, it was an audio book. He was, you know, reading his book, talking about the very story, the very case that we were covering. So the audience was able to get his point of view in his own words, in his own voice. And, and we just thought that was, very important to include that. I would say with Moses, likewise, you know, he has come out with these statements and we felt that that is part of the story. And so we wanted to include that. And we looked, we, you know, everything that's included in our film, we really fact-checked scrupulously and investigate and try to get other sources, other corroboration. Um, I mean, the fact-checking processes on our films are very, very extensive. I mean, they're they're six months processes with multiple people, and they go through multiple sets of very highly trained attorneys. It's a <laughs> it's it's a huge part of making the films that we make, and so we did look into Moses' statements, and we couldn't find corroboration for what he was saying. In fact, we found a lot of people making just the opposite points that he was making, who were there at the time with him. So we ha- we said that as well, but we felt it was important because you know he is an important part of the story that his words were heard by audiences.
0: How do you sort of draw the line between your production and other things that people who are subjects of the production may want? I mean, th- this is obviously true in Alan vs. Farrow. Ronan Farrow is someone who has a vested interest in this story and is himself a, a media personality. I'm curious how you deal with conflicts along the lines of, well, this is what's best for the production and this is what's best for you.
1: We're not, we're not, we don't work at the service of any of our subjects. And they know that there's this, that's never, it, there's not a dialogue about how do we help your agenda? How do you help ours? I mean, that's, we don't cross those lines. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we asked them just to tell us about their li- lives so we can say, well, could we shoot this? Could we shoot that? But there really isn't a lot of interplay in terms of that, honestly. You know, Ronan, no. I mean, he was extremely reluctant to talk with us and then eventually did. But, and he talks about that, you know, and he talked, in, you know, he was always reluctant about this story being, I mean, he, you know, it's, it, it's hard enough to live something than to have to sort of live it again in public 30 years later. I mean, I don't, I mean, I completely understand and empathize with his position. So it wasn't like, oh, I do this as well. You better include this, this or that or no, not at all.
2: Yeah, he was, uh, Ronan Farrow was, did not want to be part of this, you know, for a long, long time. And he really did it because Dylan asked him to in the end, um, particularly because he was a journalist. I mean, and we completely respected that. We understood that. I mean, that's a very legitimate and important concern.
0: You both started off making films about fringe characters and fringe culture, and now you're making films within a mainstream movement of a kind. How does that position you differently as filmmakers? And do you like it? Like, what is your take on on this sort of change in subject matter? And also, you know, spending the better part of a decade making films that touch on the subject of uh, sexual assault in various ways.
2: Well, I actually feel like we haven't changed. Um, I mean, we look for people who are telling a different story, than the mainstream story. And, you know, certainly Jacques Derrida and Bob Flanagan in Sick. But, you know, Tony Combs in Twist of Faith speaking out about clergy sexual abuse. Th- that's coming from the outside. The mainstream was the Catholic, you know, church position. Likewise, for our survivors who were assaulted in the military or uh, in college campuses. They were actually outsiders that were silenced. I think we look for that. We're very aware of a kind of tyranny of a mainstream position that is everyone accepts as you know the truth and everybody operates based on that. And, and we're always looking for people who are perforating that, uh, especially people who've had direct experience and have thought about this situation for a long, long time, but haven't had access to mainstream media. So as as part of our development process, we're looking for those voices. We're looking for those people. And I mean, the reality is there would be no Me Too movement at all. Nothing would have changed unless people had spoken up. And that's what causes the change in in society. And, And we we're looking for those voices to put forward.
1: Yeah, the zeitgeist unexpectedly caught up with us. I mean, it's weird, right? I mean, we were like as fringe as it gets. When I was pitching, when we were pitching Invisible War, you know, we heard no one wants to make. This was 2010, uh, and, and we had had been nominated for Emmys at that point, and we were get we could not get distribution. Everyone said no one wants to hear women's stories. This is 2010. I mean, people don't remember this now because it's like no one wants to hear stories about rape, and no one certainly wants to hear stories about rape in the military. Thank you very much. And we just did it on our own dime. So that was as outlier as it gets. You know, thank God it's now mainstream to talk about sexual assault, but believe me, it was, I remember walking into Sundance and someone yelled to Nancy in our publicist, good luck with the rape movie. Like, <laughs> and we ended up, you know, actually being kind of explosive at Sundance. It was like sort of the, and I, I feel bad that we haven't actually given a shout out and talked about on the record, because that's another film that we ended up making in the assault space. Um, recently, which again is not at all mainstream. I mean, it it is finally, you know, giving platform and voice to you know the the unique plight of women of color, particularly Black women, when it comes to sexual assault. And I love that film, and I, I hope listeners go and watch that. It's it's an incredibly beautifully constructed film. It's so you've tracked Drew Dixon as she struggles. This is interesting for journalists because actually, the New York Times is a subject in the film, as she struggles with whether to talk to this New York Times reporter or not. So we were with someone on their journey prior to them deciding to go public, which no one's seen before. And it's beautiful, verite footage. But in the course of her story, we have all these brilliant women, journalists, experts, you know, philosophers, <laughs> writers talk about the unique position Black women are in when it comes to sexual assault and the ways in which when they speak up, they not only are violating social taboos, but they're also kind of in a quadruple bind because they're possibly adding on to more oppressions for the black male community, you know, and sort of they, who wants to do that? So that film is, I think treads new territory. And as Kirby said earlier about, Oh, I do these films and we think we know everything like we learned so much and, and we hope that film helps educate the public so much about how, how, how sexual assault (laughs) operates quite differently for different people
0: in our culture. Are you following her around not knowing whether she's going to decide to do it? And who, who pays for the tab if the engaging character chooses to stay private and, and not engage? Like, I guess the, the larger question is, how do you deal with the speculative aspect of following people's lives when they can make choices that aren't the good one for the documentary?
1: Because we're survivor first, and we really walk that walk. I won't want to do any more harm. I wouldn't want to put out a film where someone didn't want us. And so actually with Drew, it was an interesting case where I said, this is, you know, I met her. It was that same week in Brooklyn when I was just interviewing different people. Her interview blew me away. I stopped interviewing her and turned around and three crew members were in tears. Like I knew something was different in that room, in that space. I mean, I have goosebumps even like thinking back on it. And I called Kirby and I was like, there's something here. And so I said to her after that, you know, Drew, you're amazing. I know you're struggling. I know. What if we followed you and don't sign a release? And I promise you, no harm, no foul. And she actually called. I said, call survivors we worked with in Hunting Ground. We have, we actually had pulled people out that like last minute got cold feet and they just, and it, it's a lot of time and money and sad, but I don't want to lose sleep at night that someone's. I made their life worse. So I said, "I promise you, a hundred percent." Like, and if we send a camera person, and you're like, "Go away," we will go away. And she she actually took us up on that. And it was it was a very rocky couple that period of time. I'm bad at timeframes. I don't want to say a couple of years because Kirby's my fact checker. And all. <laughs> but, anyways, it was a rocky period of time. And she talks very eloquently about this and very sweetly in retrospect. But she was very mistrustful. She was very anxious. And we really just sort of. We were very patient, and I and it was coming not from an insincere place. I'm not Carrie Springer. I'm not a predator. I'm not a, a, a media predator, you know, i I really whatever her what, right path for her was, I really hundred percent supported. And in the end, you know, she finally decided to go public. And then she wanted even then, after that, to see when she decided to talk to the Times, she wanted to see how she felt in the wave of the public reception. If then she still wanted, you know, so it was a very long process. And we didn't even, we didn't know till very late that she said, yeah, go ahead, start cutting, you know, I'm I'm okay with it. But uh, the other thing I want to say in terms of responsibility and just people listening, it is a very different thing to talk to a reporter and then have your story go public. And we are acutely aware of that. And I think people have to be, especially in the survivor space. And I actually, in addition to that thing I say when I sit down with them interview, I also tell them, are you ready? You know, and a walk through what this is like and what might come at you and the type of backlash, et cetera, because it's it's not pretty. And you really have to sort of tell people that so that they can make an informed consent when they sign that release.
2: I mean, we're constantly looking for those moments that happen kind of before the story is ever told, right? Or those moments where someone is deciding to tell a story or is going through a process that they think is private. And if they want to be a part, I mean, obviously in the end, it it was up to Drew to decide that that footage would be in the film, but we think there's something there about sort of getting the moment before the first moment that people normally see. We put a lot of time into development and this is, you know, these are the risks you take. But these are the incredible things you can come across, the incredible personal experiences that you can show.
0: Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docuseries, Running Sucks.
1: Is running the worst? Yeah. Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course.
0: I'm someone who reads a lot of magazine journalism. So I've like seen almost every article about R. Kelly, every article about Michael Jackson, every article about Woody Allen. But for me, seeing actual people tell the story to the camera was a completely different experience. What do you think you can achieve? in a documentary context that would be very hard in
2: text. Yeah, it's a very, very different medium. Um, I, I think uh, words don't convey the whole story, right? And I mean, we all know that. And I think the, oftentimes the difficulty of the words coming out say more than the words themselves, or the searching of a subject, or even the searching of someone who's an expert who's really thinking about this very deeply. That is as revelatory as what the the words they actually say. So you're you're seeing this internal struggle. You're seeing this theoretical struggle. All this allows, I think, audiences to see the experience, the issues in an not only a more intense way, but and in a deeper way, but I think a fuller way in ways. And um, which, of course, is not to take anything away from you know print journalism that has its own art form and its own importance and and sort of impacts the culture in its own unique and important and extremely effective way. It's just, this is something that's, you know, a, of a particular characteristic, I think, of documentary.
1: If I can add to that, or I think right now we're sort of in this ADD culture, right? It's There's so many different ways you can get information. Um, <laughs> there's so many different, things coming at us. Right. And, you know, now we're down to 140 characters, you know, you know, you want it shorter, faster, or TikTok. you know, and what's beautiful and why I think people are more likely to be moved by is by documentaries more than ever. And why they're the new black is finally, it's a quiet space. We can meditate on something for 90 minutes and you're not getting pings and you're not getting this or that, and you're being led along. And you're engaged. There's a difference when you're really following someone's story. And you're hearing, as Kirby said from their own voice, and you're judging the cadences, the inflection. you're you know, we watch visual cues as much as oral cues, right? so you're you're getting all that sensory input. It might not happen in print or you might not have that focus, you know, when you read things but you do if you're sitting and engaging with them in that kind of profound way that you kind of only do, you know, with really good cinema, I think. You know, it's the same reason why we have this love for celebrity, right? There's a powerful psychological thing that happens. It's not an accident. There's a love relationship. There's a narcissistic relationship. There's a different kind of engagement. And I think, you know, that is kind of a, a superpower of documentary or why it can Sort of affect us in the ways they do, and why we focus so much
0: on characters in the course of our investigative work. For you, Amy, as the quarterback of the interview process, when you only have that one chance with someone, when you're not going to get a chance to do a follow-up, or or they they're sort of reaching in emotional moments and interviews. What have you learned about making your way through them and, and and getting both what you need and being respectful of, of the person you're interviewing?
1: It depends, right? There's no one answer because, again, I'm I'm very focused on the person. So it's just my gut. It's like kind of a therapist of knowing when it's too much and when. But the one thing I'll say that I do notice with um, other filmmakers and other interviews because I pay attention is there's a real power to saying nothing. When someone's breaking or sad or pensive, I love to give them a ton of rope, a ton, because you find that they come up with the most interesting things, you know, when they reflect and meditate themselves internally and aren't prompted, or they're going through an emotional experience. I mean, some of the best stuff in our films, if you watch them actually are the, the breakdowns. And then you'll hear the interview doesn't say anything and you wait. And then the person says something else. That's just, oh, it's just like mic drop, you know, that you didn't know you would get and that you certainly would have gotten. And sometimes, honestly, Aaron, I've miscalled it and I fucking kick myself and I'm like, damn, you know, cause again, I'm always doing this triple process, like in the moment, but reading it. And then I'm like, I think I can go. And I go and it, the moment's gone, you know, it was stupid. You know, I should have just waited.
0: Yeah. I think about this stuff all the time in a much lower context where like someone's child will be banging on the wall but something really good will be happening in an interview. And it's just like a giant pendulum where it's like, well, I could kill the vibe here and be like, is it possible that your child could not be in the next room?
1: Oh my God, you should interview all the sound people we've worked with. We drive them crazy because I'm like, I don't care about the airplane. Don't, don't, you know, they're always like in your ear going, we got to stop. There's an airplane. I'm like, shh, no, I don't care. You know, like they don't know. They're not used to working with how we work, which it's just about that moment. I don't care. At that point, once we're going, don't, don't stop me.
0: You've now both spent a significant chunk of your lives making documentaries that touch on the topic of sexual assault. What has that been like for you personally being immersed in these stories for a significant period of time?
1: Uh it's not easy and I don't like talking about it because I don't want to discourage anyone from doing the work honestly but it you know um but I think I guess all journalists know that when you go into dark spaces you know um there's no inoculation you're part of that the story infects you as well and affects you. And um, I think my first understanding of that was because, again, we naively went into Invisible War. Well, no one's doing this. Someone's got to do it. We're going to go do these interviews. We couldn't get any money. It was just me and Kirby. We ambitiously booked like five interviews a day, and we were driving around the country meeting survivors. It was like insane. And I had no concept, none. You know, I'm sitting down listening to these stories, and then sort of by day 3 I was completely gutted without even understanding what that was, you know, and I was manifesting PTSD symptoms, and it was completely nuts. And I didn't even know you could get secondary PTSD. You know, it, it, I, it was the first time I had to take sleeping pills, et cetera. I mean, nightmares. It was insane, you know. I've worked with the poor. reporters like, oh, it doesn't affect me. You don't know. Like, it, it catches up. Like, just be careful and do self-care things because it doesn't affect you until it does. You know, like it's not, it's also not incremental. It's like paradigm shift. It's like, you're fine. You're totally not. You know, I would not have it any other way. I've learned so much. It's enriching. It's enlightening. It's important. And the only thing I'll say about it, what I want everyone to take from that is if these stories, I'm not, thank God, a first degree survivor, but if I, from doing this work can manifest these symptoms then imagine what it is for the people going through it and their loved ones. And, you know, so that just, it just sort of fueled my fire, but it's not, it's not for the faint hearted, but it's not just sexual assault. It's any dark stories. I mean, I've talked to people that, you know, interviewed, I don't know how people do the stories on, you know, torture and, you know, grave and all that.
0: What would you say to someone who wanted to make a longstanding artistic partnership? Uh, w- what makes it work and how do you deal with disagreements and what happens when uh, you vote differently on, on a key issue in a film?
2: I mean, one of the real advantages of having, you know, two people directing is that you have two perspectives and that's a real blessing in a way. You know, the tunnel vision can be very, very good and it can really pull you in to an approach and everything. But there are many other ways of looking at, at things and many other ways of approaching things. And so when, when Amy is looking at something differently, what I want to tell myself is, wait a minute, pull back. This is a whole different way of looking this. And how is that going to inform the way I think about this? These are always at the inception moments, at the creative moments. And so it is difficult. It takes, in some ways, it takes more time. But I think the end result is, Deeper and richer
1: I yeah, I mean, I think Kirby, you and I were talking about it the other day. I mean we've actually you know so it's not easy and we fight all the time and it's not good, but the good part is I don't think I think the work is much better as a result. I know I would not make as good a work without Kirby and I don't know if he'd say the same, but I mean I know that that's for sure and so I think it's a gift and that we found each other and can get along enough. For part of every day, to to do the work we do, is really lucky, and I I think about that a lot because we also we make really really aggressive films that go after powerful people, and it's a little scary. And I don't know I'd have the nerve or the courage, you know. And so it's nice to just feel like it's you got someone else helping you and and supporting you, and we kind of fuel each other that way too, you know.
2: I do want to add one thing because, you know, there's a very, very important member of our team, Amy Hurdy, who's a journalist herself and, in my opinion, one of the best investigative journalists in the field of sexual assault in the country. And, you know, she's a really important part of our team and, a, and is such an important part of the development process because once we find a potential direction, she's often the first person in there digging into the stories finding out the untold story and 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 also she's incredible at finding sources that haven't spoken documents that have never gone public and so i think being able to collaborate to work with a journalist like amy hurdy has really allowed us to be more ambitious in our projects
1: yeah, no, I, Amy Hurdy, like, yeah, virtuoso, like, unparalleled investigative work in Alan V. Farrow. I do want to, like, underline and say that, like, it would not, it wouldn't have happened. Like, she just kept bringing us stuff, and we're like, oh, my God, and just like, like a pit bull. I mean, she could, like, n- unstoppable and tenacious. I mean, an example I give of that is, honestly, we would locked picture, and she's like, I found the nanny, and we're like, what? Because <laughs> there was one, a nanny who had been in the house at the time that we could not reach you know? And we're like, she goes, is it too late? We're like, it's too late, doll. That ship has sailed. But how the hell did you do that? And she's like, you know, it was really bugging me. So I just wrote an old fashioned letter. I thought, well, maybe she's the one person on earth who isn't on social media. And so she said, I'm going to write a letter. And she wrote a letter and sent it snail mail. And the day we locked picture, she got a response like, yes, what do you want to talk about? I'm happy to talk. So anyways, because... It was so much material we couldn't include. We have a companion podcast, and Amy Herdy's on that. You hear her voice, and we're talking about, for for journalists, people listening, and want to, like, sort of follow our process, it's pretty interesting. It's like a companion to each episode and sort of talks about what, and and then actually we interview the nanny um, belatedly in in the podcast as well. So she tells about what she saw that day. That fateful day. And then I want to say in terms of collaboration, yeah, I want, it is such a collaborative medium, I guess, much more than print journalism. Everyone contributes, you know, I think our composer, you know, the music was a character in its own right and did its own incredible, sophisticated work in that, you know, um, in, in the, in this, in the Alan V. Farrah series, our producers, Jamie Rogers and Amy Hurdy were incredible, you know, in their own right. And, you know, Amy, Jamie Rogers was honest from day one saying this, you have to mention parental alienation syndrome. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, parental alienation syndrome. Like the Woody Allen case, like did the blueprint for that. And that's, you know, that's being used in, in courts today to sort of send kids back to their abusers. And so it's like all of that coming in and, and it kind of gets reflected on screen.
0: Uh, Well, thank you uh, both so much for this
2: interview. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, It was a real pleasure.
1: Thank you so much. It's really an honor and pleasure. I love this podcast and so appreciate the work you guys do.
0: And that was the Longform Podcast. Thanks very much to my guests, Amy Ziering and Kirby Dick. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Jackie Sajiko, who edited this episode. Our interns are Susan Peterson and Julian Sato-Parker. Thanks very much to Vox Media. who produced the show in partnership with them. And thanks, of course, to MailChimp. We'll be back next week.